We are continuing our journey through the biblical narrative. As um, I've said um, most of this year, we started this journey back in January in the book of Genesis. And we've made our way now till the end of the life of King David. And we're going to be pretty much wrapping up his life um, today. Now, David's a big character for me. He's one that I want to spend a lot of time talking about typically. Uh, honestly, we've given David more of our time than any other character we'll spend on in our journey through the Bible other than Jesus himself when we get to that point down the road uh, in, the, in the narrative. Uh, David's just that interesting. His, his, the characters around him are that interesting. And we've been here for a number, number of weeks now. But as we get ready to wrap it up pretty much today, um, to get near the end of his, his adventures, we are... Um, skipping so many stories these past few weeks within his narrative. It's why I always tell you to read it for yourself. There's so many good things in there. But on a day like today, as we get into um, this section, I'm going to skip a lot today as well. And even skipping a lot just to get done what we're trying to get done today, I'm gonna need a, I might need a couple uh, extra minutes. And so in honor of the World Series, by the way, which started Friday, and the very first game of the World Series went into extra innings, in honor of that, I may have to go in an extra inning myself here. I don't know, but that's a good thing, right? I enjoyed it on Friday. I know you're going to enjoy it today. Okay, don't, don't laugh, and I, that hurts. Um, just, just amen is the right answer. Amen. Take as long as you need, Arlen. That's right, yeah, okay. Lies helped me. I appreciate that. So we are going to conclude David's civil war that we started uh, last week. His son Absalom amounted a rebellion against his dad. It was 11 years in the making from the time that his sister was, was, was terribly wronged and mistreated a, a, until the time that Absalom finally decided that his dad was no longer fit to, for the throne. 11 years transpired and Absalom stirred the nation behind him. And um, he, um, he's, he's formed a rebellion. And we saw that David last week left the city. He left the city to avoid the bloodshed in Jerusalem that he didn't want to see uh, spilt. He leaves and goes on his way to um, uh, a more remote area to fight the upcoming conflict as Absalom moves in and assumes the throne. Now, in our story last week, we, I told you we skipped a lot. One story that we skipped last week, I'm going to come back and tell you right now. So we're going to rewind a little bit to tell you a story we missed last Sunday on purpose, and bring it into today's story. So go back to the part where David's leaving Jerusalem with his wives and concubines and all their children and all his men, and they're weeping, and people are sad because it's traumatic to see the king on his way out. No matter who you are, it's just it's a shocking moment for a nation, and David and his family are traumatized. It's his own son turned against him. So as he leaves weeping, the further he gets from Jerusalem, the less supporters are around him to wish him well on his way. And eventually lands in the, land of, in the, uh, the tribe of Benjamin, and he encounters not a fan, but a hater. And we see the story in 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. It says that as King David came to Bahurim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shimei, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. Now, this is a big deal because if you understand, uh, this man's related to the former king, King Saul. Saul who chased David down for all those years and tried to kill him. 
Saul, whose son became a puppet king for a number of years when David returned to the land. And so for someone like Shimei, who's related to Saul, he's all team Saul. And like so many people do with our politics, you know, you just get on a team and you're the good guys and everyone else is the bad guys and it doesn't matter. You've got a certain lens through which you see the world and there's no budging, right? And so in this story, Shimei is anti-David and pro-Saul. And it's been years. I mean, David's been, been the throne, on the throne of all of Israel for about 25 years now, and even longer in Judah. And so it's been a long time, but this man has hated David's reign all that time. And here's his chance to taunt David and celebrate his demise. He comes out cursing them. Verse number six says that he threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Now that's interesting. Why would you, he's one guy throwing stones at all of David's mighty men and all his entourage. That's a good way to get yourself killed. Like why would you take on a a group of of people, especially those who've been wounded like David's men have by the the hostilities that they're they're retreating from? It'd be so easy to go just knock this guy off. Why does he feel emboldened to throw stones and taunt these people who could kill him that fast? And here's why. Because Shimei has never had a better opportunity to rub David's face in anything. In the past, David's the king. You can't touch him. But now David's on his way out, and so David is as vulnerable as he's ever been, and Shimei may never see him again, so he's taking advantage, even though it's risky for himself, he's taking advantage of David's plight to throw it in his face. Here's what he says in verse seven. Shimei yells, get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son, Absalom. Now, there's a lot of lies in there. He says David's a murderer because he murdered Saul's clan. He killed Saul's clan. David never did that. If you remember the story, it was Saul trying to kill David, and David was, was uh, David had a chance to kill Saul twice, and in both cases says, no, we're not gonna, I'm not going to kill the Lord's anointed king. And, and then when, when Saul died in battle and David came out of exile and became the king of just the tribe of Judah and they set up one of Saul's sons as the puppet king in the northern tribes, David didn't even kill him. In fact, when others killed him years later because he was growing weaker and they brought the news to David thinking David would be happy, David executed them for executing Saul's son. He said, that's wrong. So David has never done what he's being accused of doing to Saul's clan. But here's the thing. When you're, when you're on a certain political bent, you don't want to be confused with the facts, do you? You know, who wants to be confused with the facts? I mean, I'm the good guy. We're the good guys. That's the bad guys. It's just so amazing how much we can lie and twist. Anything that, that someone you're against, if, if, if someone on a different side of the aisle than you does something good, it's not even really good or is just a bad reason for it. If they do something bad, it's because they're terrible. They're, the people that you don't agree with, or especially in a political sense like this, they're all stupid or evil or both, you know? And, and so it's amazing how much we put our filters on and can't even think logically or irrationally in our hate. And Shimei says to David, you're guilty of all the bloodshed of Saul's clan. What? Okay. In your mind, He says, you stole his throne. You're not even a legitimate king. You stole the throne. And now God has given it back to you and has given it to your son Absalom by by, by punishing you. And then he says, and at last, at last you will taste some of your own medicine for you are a murderer. How you like them apples, he says. 
And, and David's men are tired of hearing it. They're like, I'm over this. You know, some of the David's men are just, they're, they're, you know. In fact, David's got uh, his commander of his army, Joab, and Joab's brother Abishai with him. And they're always, you know, they're the guys who every time in the past from back when Saul was king and they had a chance to kill him, they're always the guys, their, their, their solution is, let's just kill somebody, you know. Let's just go kill someone right now. It'd be a lot easier if I could just do that. So sure enough, Abishai speaks up and says, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Abishai says, let me, let me go over and cut off his head. <laughs> That's the solution. I'm just going to go over there and whap, whap, cut off his head. Problem solved. Story over. We can carry on our merry way. That's the solution for every problem right there. Just cut off someone's head. And so David's answer is interesting. Verse 10. No. No, the king said. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zariah? He's like, you guys have no shortage of opinions, right? Everyone's got an opinion. But, but, but who asked you? He said, if the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? Now, I don't think that David believed Shimei was told by God to curse him. I think he's making a point that we're about to see here. Let's continue the story. Then David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, my own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Like, listen, my own son, my own relative wants me dead. Why shouldn't one of Saul's relatives want me dead? And you want me to worry about what he has to say? Who cares what he has to say? Why is what someone else has to say that important anyhow? I got bigger problems. My own son's trying to kill me. Listen, I got bigger things to worry about than some hater and some big mouth. It doesn't matter. He says, leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. Then he says, and perhaps, perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. That's how I know that David wasn't saying definitively God told him he had to curse him. David was just saying, who knows why he's cursing me? Maybe God's for what he's saying. Maybe God put him up to it or God's for the curses. Or maybe God's against what he's doing because he's wronging me in what he's doing. But here's what David's point was, and this is what you can't miss. Either way, why should I go deal with him? If God's for what he's doing, I don't want to fight against God, so I'm going to leave him alone. And if God's against what he's doing, then God's going to see that I'm being wronged and, and bless me potentially because of that, so why would I want to go and deal with him then? Either way, no matter what the reason is, there's no good reason, if you just think about it, to go deal with a critic and a hater. You just got to move on. And so I'm going to do that. So he does in verse 13. So David and his men continued down the road and Shimei kept pace with them. So David's trying to leave him alone. David's just trying to go on his way and ignore him, but Shimei won't let it happen. He keeps following on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David. Where do you think you're going? Yeah, that's what I thought. You're losing. Yay, Absalom. Boo, David. Ha ha, how you like them apples? He's just rubbing his face in it. As David just keeps walking until Shimei eventually gives up. And when you read that story, before we get into the adventure today, I just want to just, I want us to look at Shimei and ask ourselves, do we see ourselves in that story? Now, I know that when we tell stories, we like to identify with the protagonist. Like, we're the good guy in, our, in the stories. We, we identify with that person. But just for a minute, ask yourself if there's any Shimei in us. And I know that we, most of us would, would instinctively say, oh, no, I'm not that way. 
people that I don't like or people who've hurt me or people who I consider my enemies or rivals. I'm a forgiving person over things that have happened. I, I've forgiven and I have, I, I've got a healthy heart and a wholesome outlook and I wish the best for people. Okay, we can tell ourselves and we can tell others that. But I want to just give you a little thought here today. The clearest window into your heart is how you react to other people's circumstances. If you ever want to know if your heart's deceiving you and it's not as healthy as you think it is, then watch how you react to other people's circumstances and that's a real good glimpse into your heart. So for example, if there's somebody else, maybe someone that you don't like or who's hurt you or offend, you, know, you just don't like them or their arrival and all of a sudden you see good things happen to them, you can say all you want to, I'm a healthy person, I got the right heart. But if you see good things happen to them, they get a promotion, they come across a bunch of money, they get popular or recognized or praised, and it bothers you, it's just like, oh, just can't believe that person doesn't deserve that. It makes you mad, ruins your day. That's a glimpse into your heart. That something's wrong. That no matter how healthy you think you are, when good things happen to somebody and it bothers you, that should be the first clue to say, hold on, maybe I'm not as healthy as I thought I was because I shouldn't feel that way. Paul the Apostle, fast forward into the New Testament, Paul the Apostle is writing to the church in Rome and he says in Romans chapter 12 that to be followers of Jesus, we should be empathetic, that we should be happy with those who are happy and, and, and weep with those who are weeping. In other words, when people have good things come into their lives, we should be able to say, man, that's good. I'm glad you have good things because we all want good things in our lives. And I'm happy with you and I'm happy for you. And if something bad happens to somebody, we should be able to say, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. It breaks my heart. It hurts because I don't want, we all dread that. I don't want that to happen to me. And so the clearest window into your heart, when someone's doing well, does it bother you? That's a, that's a heart issue that is a gift from God. It's like a, getting a test done, like a little MRI to just see your heart and say, oh, wow, I'm not healthy because I don't like that person doing well. Or when they're doing bad, something bad happens, they lose that job, they lose some money, they have some bad news come their way, they get put down, and you're like, ooh. And then you have to act sad, oh, no, that's terrible. But then your heart, you're kind of a little extra pep in your step, like, oh, can't wait to tell somebody what happened. You hear about so-and-so. And look, when you find yourself happy in your heart and your day is better that someone else is struggling, that's an indication that something's wrong here. And hopefully we don't take it as far as Shimei. He's out there literally throwing stones and piling on and, and rubbing people's face in it. So here's my advice today. Hey, don't be a Shimei, right? That's a good advice. Don't be a Shimei to people, right? Uh, you, say, you say, but Arlen, you don't understand. What happens to them, they had it coming to them. You don't know who they are and what they've done. They had it coming to them. That's fine, but here's the thing. It's not your job to pile on. It's not your job. It's not my job to pile on anybody. So my job is to care about people and, to, and, and no matter who they are, to me, I wish the best for you. And, but, but when we find ourselves tempted to pile on, that's a me problem, that's a you problem. We've got to figure that out. That's not our place. In fact, David eventually would die and his son Solomon would become the next king. And Solomon would write wisdom literature, in the, including the book of Proverbs, was mostly written by him. And we've been looking at Proverbs the last few weeks, haven't we? In Proverbs, he talks about this very topic in chapter 27, in verse, chapter 24 and verse 17. He says this, Do not rejoice when your enemies fall, and don't be happy when they stumble. Again, he's the same thing. Don't be a shimmy eye. 
Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. Don't be happy when they stumble. And if you're not motivated by that command or by Paul's command to be empathetic, you're like, yeah, whatever. I don't care if that's the right thing to do. I'm gonna rejoice anyhow. Solomon now pivots to saying, let me appeal to your selfish nature, if nothing else. Don't rejoice when they fall or stumble. Why? For the Lord will be displeased with you and will turn his anger away from them. That God will be like, oh, wait, what are you saying? What are you celebrating over here? Oh, no, let's, let's talk about that. If you've ever been in leadership on any level at a job or in a school with students or any part of your life in a team, you might be able to relate to this. But probably the easiest illustration is parenting. If you ever have had children multiple in your house that are ever at rivalry with each other, and all of a sudden one of your children did something wrong, and you had to correct your child, maybe you're verbally correcting them. Hey, you know, and you're talking to them about it. They're being verbally corrected. Or maybe they're being corrected in a different way. They're grounded or in some time out or doing some kind of task or chore to make up for what they did. But they're going through some consequence. If you look over and see your other child grinning about it, if you see your other child taunting them, right, come on now. You see your other child like helping you parent, yeah, I'll tell you what else is wrong, or laughing or enjoying their, them getting in trouble, what do you do? You're, you, if you, most of us would be like, whoa, hey, time out. No, 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 no. You're not here to pile on them. In fact, you'll get your attention off the one you've been dealing with to deal with the one who's piling on, won't you? In fact, you might even lighten the consequence for the one who's getting piled on because you're thinking they suffered extra unnecessarily, so I'm gonna show a little mercy, but you got my attention now. And that's what Solomon is saying. Don't rejoice when your enemies fall. And here's the thing. God looks at that and says, hey, whatever's going on with them, you just got my attention about how you treated them while they were down. And you don't want that kind of attention. So here's the deal. Don't be a shimmy eye. <laughs> it's never our job to pile on. But, but David was getting piled on. We're gonna get to today's story. That's, I'm setting that up for the end. David, as, as we saw last week, he moves away. Absalom assumes the throne in Jerusalem. He gathers the people of Israel together to form an army to attack David. And Absalom places a new commander over the army because the old commander, Joab, is with David. And so Absalom places a man named Amasa in charge of his army. Now, this is the crazy part. They're all related. Like David was related to Joab and Abishai and their deceased brother Asahel. They were all related, like second cousins or whatever. And then Absalom is David's son. And then Absalom picks Amasa, who's also related to them and related to Joab. So it's like a big family affair. But anyhow, he makes Amasa his new commander. And they get the army of Israel together and they march out to find David, who has gone out towards the forest of Ephraim to a small town there to avoid the bloodshed of the metropolitan area. Uh, to, to, to go to the, to, away from the uh, suburbs and the cities and go out to the forest of Ephraim. So Absalom and Amasa, his commander, they march after David. But here's the crazy part. A lot of people join Absalom, but a lot of people join David. They support David in this cause. They think he's the good guy. So Absalom has a bigger army, but if you've been following the stories for the past many weeks, David's men, they tend to outperform. They tend to be pretty mighty men. And so he's smaller, but he's got a real chance because that's just how they fought. They, they've won many battles where they were outnumbered. So sure enough, David divides his forces that have gathered to him into three different groups. He puts one group under the command of, his, of Joab, his commander. He puts another group under the command of 
of Abishai, Joab's brother. It was the third group under the command of Ittai, who we met last week as a guy traveling from, um, uh, from the Philistine land of Gath, who was a great leader and warrior helping David. So David has these three men in charge of his forces to face Absalom and Amasa. And it says in verse 5 of chapter 18, it says, And the king gave this command to Joab, to Abishai, and Ittai. He says, For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. To which they must be thinking, uh, Young Absalom, he's not a kid anymore. He's been an adult for a long time. David, you're something like the old man you are. Deal gently with him. He's here to kill you. Deal gently with him. He's not going to deal gently with you. He's a rebel. He's taken over the throne. He's brought war. But David is not thinking like a king. He's not thinking like a man with an enemy. David is thinking like a dad. As a dad, he says, please, for my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. Well, sure enough, a battle takes place, and it's a, it's a, it's a bloody one. It happens in the force of Ephraim, and it says that 20,000 people are killed in battle. And you know anything about war, you know that if 20,000 people were killed, tens of thousands more were injured. The crazy part of the story is that the forest itself was a very hazardous place. There were precipices and, and, and pits, and there were, there were you, know, thor- you know, just bramble and, and thickets. And, and so there were many more casualties just from being in the forest and running around fighting than just the battle itself. Between, between the whole scene, 20,000 people died. And it doesn't say how many died on which side, like it usually does. Do you know why? Because there are no sides. They're all from Israel. It's a civil war. And it's all just tragic. Tragic, wasteful, needless loss of life. But of course, in the battle, David's men are winning. And Absalom's team is losing. And so they're beginning to retreat as, as David's forces begin to win. And at some point in the conflict, it says in verse number nine, during the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. Now, that's, a, that's not good. When you're the guy who's running um, the other side, he's trying to find David and kill him. He doesn't want David's men to find him as the commander. But as they lose and as the people are scattering, some are retreating, at some point in the middle of that forest, Absalom finds himself face-to-face with some of David's forces. And guess who he's facing? He's facing Joab's men, some of his men and his group. And Absalom, he tries to escape on his mule. But as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree and his mule kept going. It left him dangling in the air. So we saw this last week that Absalom, he really grew a thick head of hair. I, I really kind of am jealous of Absalom. Uh, some of you, those years are long gone for you, right? His hair apparently grew really fast and really thick. Like every year he had to cut his hair because it got so uncomfortable. He weighed like five pounds, the story said. So apparently it been a while since his last haircut. He's just riding away, getting away from David's men in a losing campaign. And as he goes under a tree, it just gets caught into some thick branches and rips him off the mule. The mule keeps going. He's just dangling there. Can you imagine how painful that would be? It says one of David's men saw what had happened and they told Joab, hey, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. Joab's response, what? Joab demanded. You saw him there and did not kill him? I would have rewarded you with 10 pieces of silver and a hero's belt. Whatever that means, you know? Like, why didn't you kill him? 
And I love his answer. The guy says, I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver. You could 100X that offer. I still wouldn't do it. He says to Joab, we all heard the king say to you and to Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, please spare young Absalom. We know what you were told to do. And here's what he says. If I had betrayed the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself will be the first one to abandon me. I mean, let's be honest, he's right, right? Like he's like, we're gonna pay me a thousand pieces of silver? Come on. When I killed the king's son, the king has put people to death for killing another person of, of authority before, even his enemies, let alone his son. And when he found out that I did that and he wants to have me killed, you'd be the first one to throw the sword through me. Come on now, thousand pieces of silver. You, he calls Joab out on it. And Joab does what so many people do when they get called out and they, and they know they lost the argument. What do you do at that point? Joab just says, enough of this nonsense. You know, I'm done talking to you because obviously I have nothing to answer. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. Then he took three daggers and he went where Absalom was and he plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled still alive in the great tree. Can you imagine Absalom? I'm sure it's only a few minutes of time have passed by because they're all close by, they're in battle. He wasn't there for hours. He was there for a few minutes total. But how long would that few minutes feel? You ever do something that's hard to do and it feels like it takes forever? Like something painful? Okay, um, I hate running. I've run I used to go running and I, um, I was like, man, it's only been four minutes. It feels like it's been three hours already, you know? You ever do something that you don't want to do and it feels like it's taking forever? Or something you love to do that it seems to fly by? Absalom hanging by his hair must have felt like an eternity, though it was a short period of time. And at some point, while he can't get free and his, the mule's gone, his weapons probably went with the mule, he can't get out. He sees Joab and his men coming and he knows it's over, rover. And as, as Joab throws these darts into his chest, it says in the next verse, 10 of Joab's young armor bearers surrounded Absalom then and they killed him. To which you're thinking, didn't the darts already do that to him? And this guy, I mean, he, how tough was Absalom? Hanging by his hair, getting darts in his chest and still 10 guys gotta hack him apart. That's like a guy who's driven by rage and hate for his dad so much. He, he's like hard to kill apparently. They finally get him finished off on that tree. And of course, as soon as this is done, the army flees because everyone who is there fighting for Absalom, they've already been losing anyhow, and now they hear that Absalom's dead. Why stay? Why fight for a king who calls you to fight when the king's dead? You know, it's over. So they all take off for home and leave. And all of David's supporters, they all come back to where Absalom's body was at, and they, they take him down from the tree, they throw him down into a big pit, they throw things on top of him and bury him, and they party. And at some point in the party, Joab says, hmm, someone needs to go back to the town and tell David what happened. So he calls a man next to him that he thought would be a good messenger, a man from Ethiopia, and he says to him, you're a tactful person, go tell the king that we won and tell him all the details, he'll, he'll want to know everything, but do it wisely. And of course, there's a whole story here. There's a layers to the story that some of you may know. I don't have time to get into today for sake of time, but read it for yourself. But at some point, the, the short version is this man goes back to David with a report. And when he gets to, the, to David in the city, he says, David, good news. We won. The throne is yours again. You can go home. You're safe and your family's safe. We are victorious. But David has only one question. Verse 32, what about young Absalom, the king demanded? Is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, 
May all your enemies, my Lord the King, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. Wow. Talk about poetic talking. You talk about poetic words. What a way to tell him the news, the Absalom's dead. May all your enemies, my Lord the King, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway, and he burst into tears, and as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son. My son. David's feeling like I left the throne so I wouldn't have to fight him. And I've already lost one son before him. I know Amnon probably had it coming, but I lost the second one. And I just wish it would have been me. I wish I was the one who died. And all the people who were there to celebrate the victory and, uh, and, and, uh, and what they did to help David, all of a sudden they all don't know what to do because David's upset. And they all start feeling guilty like they blew it somehow. So they all start hanging their heads and drooping their shoulders and they start heading home into their houses or out of the town. Just they don't know what to do because David's a mess. And about that time, Joab comes back from the battlefield and he comes to the town and finds out that David is up in his room hysterical and upset and crying and everyone else is, is not sure where to go from here. So Joab decides someone's got to confront David right now. In verse number five of chapter nine, it says, then Joab went to the king's room and said to him, we saved your life today and the lives of your sons and your daughters and your wives and your concubines. Like, I know you, you lost a son who was trying to kill you and your, all your other sons and daughters and family. But, but here's the thing. All the other sons and daughters are still alive. And so is your wives and your concubines and so are you. We saved your life today. Yet, you act like this making us feel ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. you. You made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. It seems that if Absalom would have lived and all of us had died, you'd be pleased. It seems like that's what it looks like here. Now, now go out there. He, he's gonna give him some advice. Now go out there. And congratulate your troops, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a single one of them will remain here tonight, and then you'll be worse off than ever before. If you lose this crowd now, you lose it all, and they'll never get it back. It's going to be bad news. You better go out there and do the right thing and thank those people who've stood by you. And David, if you've been with us the last many weeks, you know that no matter what kind of a bad emotional state David has ever been in, he's always been approachable with blunt talk. And usually he does the right thing when he's confronted by Abigail, by Nathan the prophet, and in this case by Joab himself. So sure enough, in verse 8, so the king went out and took his seat at the town gate. And as the news spread throughout the town that he was there, everyone kind of went out to him sheepishly, right? And David was able to thank them and appreciate them and celebrate with them and honor them and, and, and enjoy the moment. Well, what happens next is a lot. So I'm going to summarize some things that we don't have time to get into, but you should know. As David prepares to head back to the, to, to the tribe of Judah, to the city of Jerusalem, where he, he lives and where the throne's at, as David prepares to head back, the nation begins to splinter in this, this power vacuum. A bunch of the northern tribes start to say, why do we want to follow the tribe of Judah? 
They're hot mess. Their own families are trying to kill each other. We don't need that mess. And, and, and in this power vacuum, a man named Sheba steps up and says, hey, who needs, who needs the house of David? Come on, Israel. We'll just separate from them. And this is not the first time the nation has been divided, and it certainly won't be the last. But he basically says, let's splinter off the nation away from David right now. And David, as this is happening, begins to head back to Jerusalem. And, and he goes and he sends word. This is interesting. David sends word to Amasa. Remember Amasa? He's the commander of Absalom's army who was trying to kill David, but they're kind of relatives. David sends word to Amasa who survived and says, hey, I'll tell you what. Why don't you be my, new, my brand new commander of my army I'm replacing Joab. David was not happy that Joab had killed his son, and he's like, I'm done with him. You're my new commander if you'll join with me. And Amasa's like, cool, <laughs> you know. So David heads back. He gets to Jerusalem, and he says, Amasa, as my new commander, I want you to go gather the armies of Judah together again because we're going to have another problem up north with the, tribes, the northern tribes splintering off. So get the army together. So Amasa goes to gather the army. But it takes a little while to do that. And so David's thinking to himself, I can't wait for Amasa to get back with the army. I've got to send somebody to hunt down that Sheba guy before he becomes a bigger problem. So he turns to his men, who've been led by Joab, his mighty men, his, his special forces, and he doesn't even talk to, he won't even talk to Joab. He turns to Joab's brother Abishai and says, Abishai, take my, my men and go find Sheba and, and kill him before he becomes a bigger problem. Just go up north and hunt him down. And again, in the past, Joab was the guy in charge and Abishai would stick with his brother. But now he's like, Abishai, I'm just talking to you. Take the men and go get the job done. But of course, where Abishai goes, Joab goes and vice versa. So in verse number seven, it says, so Abishai and Joab, together with the king's bodyguard and all the mighty warriors, all the mighty men, they set out from Jerusalem to go after Sheba. So they're on the, they're on the hunt. As they arrived at the great stone in Gibeon, Amasa met them. So this is an awkward moment here. Amasa's been gathering the rest of the army as the brand new commander. And who does he run into? Joab, the former commander, who he's replaced, who was just fighting him in battle anyhow. But Joab, the former commander, and his brother Abishai taking the men to go hunt down Sheba, and they intersect. Awkward. So they shake hands, high five, and they go on their separate ways, right? Not exactly. It says that Joab was wearing his military tunic with a dagger strapped to his belt, and as he stepped forward to greet Amasa, he slipped the dagger from its sheath. How are you, my cousin? Joab said. And he took him by the beard with his right hand as though to kiss him. And Amasa did not notice the dagger in Joab's left hand. And Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it so that his insides gushed out onto the ground. And he disemboweled him, like literally right there, just very thoroughly. Joab did not need to strike again, and Amasa soon died. It was, it was brutal. And then Job and his brother Abishai left him lying there and continued after Sheba. You know, they're like, it's like this whole moment where they're like, oh, we're going to go get Sheba. Oh, it's Amasa. Hey, how are you? Kill. Okay, let's go. And they just went on their way to go get the guy they were sent to get. And Amasa's just laying there disemboweled on the ground. And all of Amasa's men are just like, what just happened? What was that? And so it says in verse number 11 that one of Joab's young men shouted to Amasa's troops, if you are for Joab and David, come and follow Joab. Notice it's Joab again, not Abishai. Like Joab keeps getting displaced and he keeps coming back around. He just kills the next guy who's replacing him. And his brother's like, it's all you, Joab. 
If you're for Joab and David, come follow Joab. But the problem was, people were staring. It says, but Amasa lay in his blood in the middle of the road, and Joab's man saw that everyone was stopping to stare at him. They had gapers delay. So he pulled Amasa off the road into a field and threw a cloak over him. And with Amasa's body out of the way, everyone then went on with Joab to capture Sheba, the son of Bichri. And that's the last big battle that we don't have time to tell the whole story. It's really cool. Basically, they come to a town where they find Sheba's hiding. And they're going to tear the town apart to get to him. And some lady inside is like, why are you trying to hurt us? And like, we're not trying to hurt you. We're trying to get to Sheba. And so she makes a deal. She goes inside, consults with the right people, and they decide to, um, to uh, cut off Sheba's head and throw it out to the, of, the, of, the, of the city to, to Joab. Is this what you want? Yep, that'll work, you know. <laughs> Thank you very much. And the war, it was over. They just went home. It was just the end, man. And so at this point, the, the, the next revolt was over. The nation settles back into a time of relative peace again. Finally. And David lives out the last 10 or 12 years of his life in peace. We're pretty much at the end of David's story. He lives out the rest of his decade, maybe a dozen years without any more problems or much more written about him at all. And Joab's the commander again. Just, I mean, why not? Life goes on. Now, we, we have a little story to tell that we skipped earlier. I want to go back to it before we ramp up, up today. We skip the story again in today's narrative. So let me rewind just a little bit, and we'll, we'll end with this story and application. As David was returning to Jerusalem once the battle with Absalom was over, as he's turning back to his throne in power, in victory, people begin to come out of the woodwork to greet him. People who are supporters clapping that he's back. Those who didn't go with him but are wanting to make sure that they're, they're on his side. And one person that he encounters on his way back is, guess who? Shimei. The guy who taunted him on the way. It was interesting because last time they met, Shimei felt like David was on bottom and he was throwing stones and loving it. The problem with Shimei was he outed himself because David didn't know who this random Anon was before this. You know, he was just some guy who was, you know, he didn't know about. But now that Shimei threw stones and said, ha ha, David, you're getting what you deserved. As David comes back victorious, well, the cat's out of the bag. And Shimei's terrified of what's going to happen to him. So it says in chapter 19, verse 18, as the king was about to cross the river, Shimei fell down before him. He's going to grovel. Verse 19, my lord, the king, please forgive me, he pleaded. Forget the, the terrible thing your servant did when you left Jerusalem. May the king just put it out of his mind. Like, let's pretend that never happened. Let's forget that unpleasant scene, shall we? Like, I mean, seriously, don't remember what I did. I know how much I sinned. That is why I have come here today, the very first person in all Israel, to greet my Lord the King. I didn't have to come find me. I found you. You know, it was a spot of weakness, knowing that David could have definitely gotten back at him right now. And people with David were ready to do so. Guess who's with David at this point? Abishai and Job, the big mouths, you know, the ones who are always ready to kill first, ask questions later. And so Abishai, the son of Zerai, said, Shimei should die, for he cursed the Lord's anointed king. This is a funny story to me, because this is, a, if, if you were tracking with us weeks ago, what, what Abishai just said is a throwback. 
to decades earlier when David was a young man on the run from King Saul and Abishai was with him back then and they had a chance to kill King Saul and Abishai's like, let me just kill him. I just need one shot, it's all I need. And David's like, no, we're not gonna kill King Saul because he's the Lord's anointed king and you're not innocent to attack the Lord's anointed king. So decades later, Abishai remembers those words and he's like, Shimei, I should die. He attacked the Lord's anointed king, aha, you know. So he's got a reason to, to just do what he wants to do, just kill this guy. But David's answer is so interesting. He says, who asked your opinion? You sons of Zerah. The same thing as before. You have so many opinions. You got, you got so many opinions. But who asked? Well, just because you have an opinion doesn't mean we need to hear it. Like, why have you become my adversary today? And here's what he says. This is not a day for execution. For today I am once again king of Israel. He says, this is a good day. This is a day for celebration, not a day for execution. You got the wrong priorities once again. And then turning to Shimei, David vowed, your life will be spared. And I know that Abishai is confused because his answer both times was just kill the guy. And David's perplexing because here's Abishai. If today's not a day for execution, when was? Because when you were running for your life and we wanted to kill him the first time while you were in trouble, you're like, I have bigger problems. Here's David's perspective. I have bigger problems in my life than to detract from my problems to deal with a hater and a critic. Because it would be a, it would be a, a, a wrong priority in a sad state of my mind if I'm gonna walk away from my bigger issues that need my attention to deal with a critic and a hater. So that, now it's not the time. But then David comes back victorious. He's like, is now the time? No, no, no. We're winning now. There's something to be thankful for to celebrate. I wouldn't detract from this good moment to be detract, distracted to go deal with a critic or a hater. It's not the right. It would be a diminishing of our good moment here. Now is not the time. Well, David, if then wasn't the time and now it's not the time, then when's the time? And David's like, there isn't a time. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what stones they throw. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter how they pile on. Here's the thing. It doesn't matter. If you're going through a tough time, you have bigger things to worry about. If you're going through good times, you have bigger things to celebrate. That is a distraction that is beneath being addressed. So I said earlier about, about Shimei, I said earlier that it's not your job to pile on. Remember that? Like, don't be a Shimei. It's not your job to pile on. And, and when I said that earlier, maybe some of you were thinking, I agree, Arlen. I agree. But here's the thing, I'm not piling on anybody. I'm the one getting piled on. I have a Shimei in my life and they're just piling on me while I'm going through a bad time. They're just saying stuff to me or about me behind my back or, or just making things harder. They're rubbing my face in it. They're piling on. So now what? Well, here's what I wanna say to you then from David's example. It's not your job to pay them back. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard. So when you're in a weak spot like David was first in, sometimes you want to do the one thing. I can't control all my problems. I can't control the boss at work, but I can take it out of my, you know, weak kids or something, you know. Ah. You know, it's easy to want to just lash out when you're, you know, here's David saying, here's Shimei. I can't deal with Absalom. I can kill Shimei. I can, I can get this one problem. I have one less problem without you, you know. So he could go after him. Or David is victorious saying, now is my chance to, to rub your face in it but it's not my job to pay him back. And it's not your job to pay back the people who pile onto you. In fact, interesting story here. I told you earlier that in the, the Christian scriptures, the New Covenant, 
that, that the Apostle Paul had said that we're supposed to be happy with those who are happy and be sad with those who are sad. He's talking about how we're not to be like this world, we're not, be, not to be conformed to this world. And he says, don't behave like the world behaves. Be, be good to people, even if you don't like them when they're happy for their good times and sad for their bad times. The same chapter, Romans chapter 12, same chapter, Paul also says, if someone's been piling on you, it's not your job to avenge yourself. In the same exact place, he says, leave that to God's capable hands. Vengeance does not belong to you. But I want to, right? So I'm gonna, I wanna imagine with you here that David, David's so poetic. David writes these great songs all through the book of Psalms. And David was too busy to write a song about this, but I imagine there's another spot in the scriptures that we can almost see a glimpse into what David might have written had David written something during this time of, of running for his life while Shimei threw stones. It's found in a later writing in the minor prophets of the, of the, of the ancient Israel record. It's a story about um, a man named Micah who was a prophet of Israel. While Israel was going through national judgment, Micah wrote about um, them going through bad times and their enemies were enjoying their demise. And, and Micah makes an illustration about his own struggles. And here's what he says in Micah 7, 7. He says, as for me, hey, I'm in trouble, right? As for me, I look to the Lord for help. My eyes are on God, in other words. I, will, I wait confidently for God to save me, and my God will certainly hear me. Then in verse 8, he says, do not gloat over me, my enemies. Don't gloat. It's easy to do. I know, I know Solomon years earlier, you know, many years earlier, wrote the words, don't rejoice when your enemy stumbles, because that might displease God. But I'm saying to me, I'm the one who's in trouble. And so my enemies, hey, don't gloat over me. Because here's why. For though I fall, I will rise again. I might be knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. By God's grace, though I sit in darkness, the Lord will be my light. And I'll get back up and he'll be a light to my feet and to my path in front of me. And it's not over. I'm down, but I'm not out. And it's not over. He says, I will be patient. It's going to take a while. Might be a long, tough season I'm going through right now, but I'll be patient because I can straighten my back up and look down the road at the big picture. And I'll be patient as the Lord punishes me for I've sinned against him. I have got self-inflicted troubles in my life. And you don't gloat about that because I'm patient. After this is over, after that, God will take up my case and give me justice for all I've suffered from my enemies. The Lord will bring me into the light and I will see his righteousness. What, what he's saying is simply this. The story's not over. This is not the end of the book. It's just a chapter. And we're going to get through this thing. And I'm down, but I'm not out. So don't celebrate too quickly. And that's what David was going through. David was saying along the way the same exact thing. There's a bigger picture here. And it doesn't involve the, the, the yappers and the critics and the haters. They don't matter. It doesn't matter who doesn't like you. What matters is, is what's going on. If I'm going through a bad time, I need to turn to God and say, God, help me through it. If I've caused my own bad time, turn to God and say, God, help me up. And if I'm coming out of a bad time to say, God, you've been good to me, I don't need to be distracted and petty with other people because they were petty with me. That's not the way forward. See, but, but, but what about them, though? Who's going who's gonna to shut them up? Somebody's going to shut them up. Can I give you some advice today? The best way to shut them up is to get back up. When you're down, if someone doesn't like you enough to, to expose themselves when you're down, 
Just, the best answer is, oh, now I know you, you don't light me up. I'm just going to get up and go on. That's the best answer. The best way to shut them up is to get back up. Or let me put it this way if I can. The, the best comeback is you coming back. That's what I'm saying. You say, but yeah, but, but what about them? That's petty. That's small. And I know we're all drawn. We live in a world that can be so petty, and social media has not helped us. It's so easy to get sucked into the petty little stuff. But we're supposed to be bigger picture people than that. We're supposed to be like our Savior who, who loved the world, though he suffered for our sins. And my best advice to you is, man, if you're going through a bad time, get your eyes on the Lord. If you're going through a good time, Keep your eyes on him and thank him and never get distracted with the things that just don't matter and the talkers don't matter. If you get drawn into that game, you're always going to be creating more of the same. And it doesn't help. It doesn't really make you feel better. It becomes an addiction. I have to answer because that's, that's what I do. Just let it go. So David, we're wrapping up his life today. David understood this. In fact, to quote another great passage of wisdom literature, I would quote the great uh, sage that said, the hater's going to hate, 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 hate. But I'm just going to shake, 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 shake it, shake it off. If you don't know where the reference for that is, it's found in the book of Taylor, 1989. Um, the new revised version, by the way. Anyhow, but um, so here's the deal. Here's a point. David is at the end of his life. When we, when we finish the story here, when we finish the story here, we're going to see David. The only story left that involves David is on his deathbed. It's mostly about his children, not really about him. And we're going to get to that in a few weeks. We're going to get a couple of weeks off of our series here. We have other business to cover for the next couple of weeks. When we come back to the story, we'll find David basically on his deathbed and his kids in a big adventure. But David's pretty much done today. But before he was finished, before he was done, before he we move on today. I just want to encourage you. Don't be a shimei. Don't pile on anybody. It's not worth it. It's not right. It's not your job to pile on. And if someone piles on you, it's not your job to pay them back. Let's be better than that. Here's, here's the thing about David. When David was a young man, when he was a young man, he was a shepherd. And he wrote a song about being a shepherd and how that God was his shepherd. And he understood God as a shepherd, by being a shepherd himself and said, I know what to do to my shepherd. What do you do if you have a shepherd? You trust him, right? You, you trust him and follow him. And the Lord's my shepherd, he said. Well, later on, David became a king. And once he became a king, he began to think about, God is my king. What do you do for a king? It's the same thing. You trust him and you follow him. And you worship and praise him. And so David wrote songs saying, God, I trust in you and I'm going to follow you. And I'm going to be grateful for all you do. I'm just going to learn to rest in you. And all of us in life would be better served if we would walk through this life looking at our king and saying, the best thing I can do. What can, I, what can you do for a king? What can we do to, to bless a king? I can praise him. I can, be, I, can, I can show my gratitude. And I can trust him. And I can rest in his guidance. And I can follow him. Wherever you are today, I hope David's story has been a guiding light to your story.